scripture for today is from John 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went on to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 2. If you haven't turned there yet, go right ahead. As you're doing that, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and we beg that the singing coming out of our lips would match the, po the posture of our hearts, God. Or in fact, change our hearts to mimic the words coming out of our mouths, God. And we cry to you and sing to you that we need you every hour, every moment, God. Let our hearts know that it is true. Let us cling to you. Let us love you. Let us worship you. And as we so humbly and so joyfully come to your text to engage with you, the living God, we ask that you would open up our hearts and open up our minds, that we would see you clearly. That the response of us would be the response of the disciples, that we would see your glory, the glory of your Son, and we would believe. Heavenly Father, Work that work in our hearts. Amen. Isn't life interesting? Things are never, they're never what you think they're going to be. They never, the first impression that you have is never really it. It's just one layer and then there's everything else behind it, either for good or for bad. You, you start a, a little house project. It's not that big of a deal, right? Then you start pulling things apart and you have no idea what's behind that wall. Next thing you know, you're not replacing just a little wax ring for a toilet. You're tearing up subflooring and tubs are coming out and new plumbing. Well, electrical needs to be done. Oh, for a little wax ring. You have no idea. No idea what you're getting into. Or you go back to school. 
like a fool. You go back to school, you think, oh, I'm getting six hours of sleep right now. Life is pretty stable. We're pretty good. I'm going to plunge myself back into school. No, don't, don't do that. That's a horrible idea. Or you, it's not always for ill, but it's always also for good. And you get married, and you love your bride, and you love your groom, but you have no idea how much you could truly love them. Or you, you've seen them since the moment you've met them, but you had no idea how beautiful they actually were. You had no idea the depths of the beauty that was truly there. It's this continued grandness that you will see in our text as you meditate on it again and again. When you approach it, you go, oh, sweet, a wedding. I like weddings. Wine. I like wine. Boom. I like this story. <laughs> this is awesome. And, but then, and we just kind of take it at that and go, oh, Christ is good. This is fantastic. But hopefully we can begin to unpack all that is there and see the beauty that John is laying out before us. So what we want to do, kind of the, the main idea is that we want the, the response out of our hearts to be that of the disciples. What did the disciples do? Well, they beheld the glory of Christ and they believed. John wants the same thing for you. When you, when you read this text, he wants you to see the glory of Christ and to believe. So we're going to see this in a couple ways. One, verses one to five, you're going to see the old wine is gone. The old wine is gone. The old way of life is gone as well. Not only is the old wine gone, but the new wine is abounding. And then finally, here in verses 11 and 12, you're going to see the glory of Christ and the belief of the disciples. Now, as we're preaching through the gospel here, we're going to be in several years. And how John has laid it out is that it's... it's <laughs> It's like fabric woven together, right? And when we're preaching on it or teaching on it, necessarily we have to cut off a small section of it, right? And then we look at that and we glorify it and we think it's beautiful, but we lose sight of what John is doing throughout the whole gospel. So as we, before we approach our little text here, we're going to just step back and see what's been happening so far. Quickly, we see that Christ... He's God, he's with God, comes in the flesh, boom, he's baptized with John. And he gathers some disciples, and they're impressed. They go, wow, you, you saw me under the tree. That was, that was pretty amazing. And they say, Rabbi, you, you are the son of God, the, the king of Israel. And Christ responds and tells them, you have no idea. You're impressed because I saw you on a tree. You have no idea. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. Adam touched on this last week, but remember when, when Jacob's on the run from Esau, because if he's a deceiver, and he has his, he finds his, he's at, uh, this place, and he finds a comfortable stone, uses <laughs> it as a pillow, and falls asleep. In Genesis 28, he says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. 
and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And he has this amazing experience. And then his response is, how beautiful, how awesome is this place, this location? How amazing is this location? There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. The very place where God and man would again be communing. That's why he says, this is an amazing place. Jacob does in Genesis 28. So now that Christ has come, what is he doing? He's taking that upon himself. Do you see that? Saying, if you want to commune with God, it's not going to happen at Bethel, which is done. It's not going to happen at Shiloh, which isn't gone. It's not going to happen here in Jerusalem for long. It's going to happen through me, through Christ. Christ is showing you how to read your Old Testament here as well. It's pointing right to him, that all things are to him and from him. And as Paul would say, are united in him. So Christ has made this bold declaration. Not that he's a ladder. That's not it. Christ is telling us, if you want to commune with God, there's only one way. That's the Son of God. That's the Son of Man. That is Christ incarnate. So how is John going to demonstrate this? You have this... Bold claim, and then right afterwards, do you see how, what John is doing here? You see how he's orchestrating this? He makes this bold claim, and then right afterwards, boom, wedding at Cana. So how is he going to demonstrate this? Well, obviously, at the wedding in Cana. And, and just, just one more thing. Okay. Do we have time? Um, as we are going through the Gospels, not only are you have to keep in mind... Uh, that it's a fabric woven together and we're going to take chunks of it and you do your homework. Read the gospel of John throughout us. Read it again and again and again as we're preaching through it. So then you will be able to better understand what's going on beforehand and afterwards and how this fits in the whole picture. Also, when we approach these stories, it's our, our innate thought that we're thinking, I wish I could have been there. And we find ourselves focusing more so, I'm sure you guys covered this in School of Theology and Hermeneutics, we find ourselves focusing more so on the event than the text. Right? And it's to encourage you not, not to focus so much on, on the event and all that is happening and your desire to be there, but rather actually focus on the text. Don't think that you're somehow missing out. Because you weren't there. You should be thinking, rather, how does God reveal himself to us? That's the question. Because ultimately, that's why you should want to be at the event. Because you can see the revelation of God. So now you ask yourself, how does God reveal himself to us now? If he still wanted to do it through these events, Christ would still be here. Doing these events again and again and again. But he's not, obviously, because God had a plan to do it a different way. The author of Hebrews says that um, long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
In these last days that we are in, he has spoken to us through his son or by his son. And then in John 5, Christ says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness to me. So if you want to have an event, if you want to encounter Christ, do it in the text. Encounter Christ through his text. But if you want to have an event, how does God reveal himself in events today? This is it. The gathered local church where God especially dwells with his people as we are knit together into a temple of God. That's why Jacob was saying, this place is amazing because God was communing with people at that location. This is the location where you guys, the temple of God, are built up together. So if you want to have an event, don't try to imagine yourself at a wedding. Encounter Christ through the written word and come to the gathered local church. Keep that in mind as we go through uh, this gospel over the next couple years and you see these miraculous miracles and walking water and official sons being healed and this and that. It's, it's, it's an event that God is revealing himself to you through the text. Long for the text. Eat the text. Drink the text. Read the word of God is my encouragement to you. That being said, let's go to the text. All right, verses one. On the third day, okay, let's stop there. So what, this is not a Pauline epistle, right? John gives you clues. How do you read narratives? He gives you clues. Pay attention, right? So there's, there's this one day, right? And then it says, verse 29, chapter 1, the next day, day 2, the next day, the next day. You're up to day 4. Now, three days later, you have the seventh day of a new creation. Do you see, do you see how subtly John will communicate that to you? It's not as explicit. Paul would just say, you foolish Galatians, Christ is the new creation. Like, that's what he would say. But John... It's not as explicit. I think it's actually more forceful as you read the text, steep in the text, and you pick up on these little clues of in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And you begin thinking about the beginning and then has the next day, the next day, the next day, and three days later, we're talking about a new creation here. See how John communicates that through so subtly and so beautifully through the epistle here. Okay. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, we have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So the wedding here is, is happening in Cana, which is about four miles uh, from where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. We have no mention of Jesus or of Joseph, but you see that it's a, a communal, probably a communal and, and family affair that's going on here. And then in that time, the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you run out of wine. 
And so before this happens, you, you can kind of see the, 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 uh, the bridegroom starts getting nervous and the master of the feast starts sweating a little bit. And then Mary, who obviously knows the, the miraculous power of Christ at this time, she was there, right? She sang the Magnificat. She knows a little bit what's happening. She turns to him. And notice how Mary is now called Mary. There's no other body that's named in here. Also pick up on that. How's John subtly telling you who the most important person is? It's Christ. The disciples are not named explicitly. We don't know who the bridegroom is. We don't know who the master of the feast is. Even Mary is referred to through the central figure, which is Christ. She's not Mary. She's the mother of Christ, the mother of Jesus. And she comes to him and they, she tells him, we have no wine. And so Jesus so graciously and so kindly says these sweet words to her. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Don't try this at home. Don't. You know, you, you see somebody, it's usually a guy doing something stupid and they have the little thing on the bottom, you know, he's trying to test his homemade, you know, armor plating and he has his neighbor shooting a rifle or pistol at him and just says, don't try this at home. Like, no, this, that's my warning to you. Just don't try this at home. It's, it's in the text. Just leave it in the text. And it's actually a good translation, right? But it, it's not as caustic, actually. It's not as caustic as it comes across. Go to John 19. And it's the same term of endearment that he uses when he's up on the cross and he's handing off his mother to his beloved disciple, John. He says, in John 19, he writes, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to the woman, or he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And then from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So it's not quite as caustic as you think on first impression. But he tells Mary, on one hand, he tells her, my hour has not yet come, right? So you think, oh, he's not going to do anything. But then he goes ahead and he does the miracle. So what's happening here? His hour has not yet come. He's, he's saying it's... It's not the full revelation of who I am. I might do this miraculous thing, but it's not the full revelation of who I am. It's not going to happen in the temple. It's not going to happen on the lake. It's not going to happen anywhere else, but this full revelation of who I am is going to come in his messianic sacrifice. When the moments of death are looming over him, he's done multiple miracles, multiple healings along the way, all the while saying, my hour has not yet come. This is not it. This is amazing. But this is some way for you to interpret everything else that's going to happen. You will see this, but my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then you get to John 17. When these moments of death are looming over him, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. 
And we'll talk about this in a little bit. But you notice why the mother of Jesus, the mother of Christ, comes to him. They come to him because there's no wine. Right? They come to me... Christ would say, because your family or friends are under social pressure, sure, I, I can do this. But examine your hearts. When do you come to Christ? What are your motivations for coming to Christ? We'll talk about that a little bit later. Let's go back to the text here and see how Christ responds. Look down here in uh, verse 6. Now there were six stones of uh, uh, six stone water jars Therefore, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water had knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is where it gets interesting. So you have these, these jugs available, jugs of wine available, but that's not what's used. Right? So that's kind of another clue of, oh, he's not just making wine here. If he wanted to make wine, he would have just filled up the jugs of wine. Problem solved. But his intention is not merely to supply wine, but to reveal himself. So you have these six, sto these six uh, stone water jugs up front. And they would keep them in stone jars so the water would not get defiled. And they're used, as even John says, for this ritual cleaning and purification. And he says to him, fill them up. Fill up. Fill them up. No, don't you realize we're out of wine? You told me <laughs> to go and fill up the water purification jugs up front. Con Congratulations. Thanks. This is going to be great. Do we do the same thing? Don't you realize that I no longer have money for groceries? And the response of Christ... It's not boxes of food, but him calling you to patience. Isn't that how it works? Or don't you realize that I'm, I'm losing my mind with just the pace of life that we live in now? And God's gift is not an empty Google calendar. No. But a, a call to hope and to perseverance. Or don't you realize we're out of wine Everybody we've ever known is here. Yeah, fill up the water jugs. Okay. And in this tension, look at the response of the servants. Fill the jars with water, he says. And they filled them up. And then he said to him, now draw some out and take it to the master. So what did they do? Well, they drew some out and then they, they took it to the master. 
Do you see their obedience? Fill them up. I don't know why he's telling me to do this, but I'm, okay, I'm going to fill this up. And then fill them up. And they fill it. Take some out. They take some out. Bring it to the master. They bring it to the master. Okay. We don't know if they knew when it's turning the wine. They're just obeying. The Lord does not burden you, brothers and sisters. In your faith, the Lord does not burden you with toiling and exacting tasks. In the same way, maybe he's calling you to lead or host a community group. He's not calling you to change people's hearts. He's calling you to vacuum maybe one extra time, right? And clean up. Lose out on a little bit of sleep. He's calling you to lead a community group. He's calling you to prepare a lesson. He's not telling you to change people's hearts. No, he's just telling you, fill it up. Fill it up with water. I will turn it into wine. You be faithful and fill it up. How much? Until it's overflowing. Abounding obedience in the simple things so that you would see the glory of Christ work in miraculous ways. Then finally, John begins to interpret here what actually happened. This is, which is also why it's, the events are fine, but in the text, you have John interpreting it for you. You see the event, you have no idea truly what's happening, how all of these are happening. Here's John, a generation later, writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you have this interpretation of this again. Verse 11. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. You'll see the, the second sign that John will have also in chapter 4, the healing of the official son. That's also going to take place in Cana. So if this is the first, there's another one to come, of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Again, remember what John is doing here. If you go back to the previous chapter, the last verse here. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What John is doing is showing you, demonstrating for you, proving to you that Christ is the one whom will be, he'll bring you into the presence of God. And he's going to do this with, this with these seven signs, right? The healing of the official son, the healing at Bethsaida, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, the sight are receiving, uh, or the blind actually are receiving sight. And then you have Lazarus in chapter 11, raised from the dead. And this is the first one. So this is the interpretive lens by which you will understand all of these other signs. John could have put it last if he wanted to, but he put it up first. So you could understand what is happening. So what's happening here? Well, you have a couple things here. It's quite simple. You have a couple ingredients here. You have a wedding, you have water, and you have wine. So this scene here is not about... In Cana, that it's not, again, it's not about God's love for good wine. It's not your ticket to indulgence. 
You shouldn't be frustrated that it's not craft beer, some of you. But this is the place, this wedding in Cana is a place where all of some of these major tributaries of the Old Testament are coming together. So let's look at them. The wedding, the water, and the wine, briefly. The wedding. The arrival of the new kingdom, especially in Isaiah, we'll look at Isaiah quite a bit, especially in Isaiah, is through the lens of a wedding. That's what it looks like for the new kingdom to come. It's not a time of sorrow, but a time of rejoicing. You can see in Isaiah 54, he says, you shall, no, you shall no more be termed forsaken. You shall not be called that. No, your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land is married. This is what it looks like for God to restore his people who have been longing out, crying for him. Maybe that's you this week. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young woman marries a, a young man, so shall your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. The new kingdom looks like a wedding. But then we have the water as well. Obviously, what John even tells you, this is a reminder of the, of the mosaic way of life. This is how John tells you to interpret the water here. It's there for the Jewish rites of purification. Water is used again and again and again. Numbers 19, I think it's used over 12 times in that chapter. Water is. To show how through water, by water... By washing yourself, washing other things, sprinkling water of purification on other things. Other things will be made pure through the Mosaic law by means of water. And notice how the water is used here. They don't kick the, the buckets over, right? They dump the water out. No, they fill them up. So it's not the Mosaic law being pushed aside. It's a Mosaic law being fulfilled. It's a Mosaic law finding its true end and being pointing to Christ. As John says, for the law was given through Christ, grace and truth. Or the, the law was given through Moses, sorry. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we have the wedding pointing to the new kingdom. We have the water, this old way of life that is being now transformed into this wine. Wine is one of the most beautiful ways that God is showing the arrival of the new age. It's, it's everywhere. It's Isaiah 25, Isaiah 27, Genesis 49, Jeremiah 31, Hosea 2. I hope you're writing all these down. Joel 2, Joel 3, Amos 9, Zechariah 9, Zechariah 14, or Zechariah 10, I should say, verse 10, verse 7. There's a host of places here where the wine is a picture and the sign of the new age. Look at Isaiah 25. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he 
shall swallow up death forever. So what we have happening here at this wedding that John is laying out for us, how are you going to have communion with God? Well, John is showing us it's not about the water being fermented. It's not about water being changed to a different color. That's not what's happening. This is a clear declaration that the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is here and it is happening through Christ. The presence of God that Jacob was rejoicing in, you too can rejoice in it. That's not some far off story. It's here for you through Christ. So what do we do with this? What does it look like this? If this, if this is true, what does it look like for the spirit of Christ to work this in you? Again, know why you come to Christ. He's always the, the place to turn. So whatever might prompt you to turn to Christ, I rejoice in. But do you come to him to alleviate your situation or to make it a little bit better? Is that your motivation in coming to Christ? Whatever the reason might be, again, I rejoice that you're coming to Christ. But when you come to him, don't just expect the alleviation of a situation or cure to cancer or restored marriage. I hope that happens. But when you come to Christ, come to him to see his glory. Come to Christ to behold his glory. Marriage will fix itself at that point. Cancer or no cancer, I don't care if you see the glory of Christ. So whatever motivates you to come to Christ, awesome. When you're there, come and behold his glory. Number two that we already talked about, simple obedience. Simply be faithful in the small things that God is asking you to do. He's not a taskmaster. That's not him. He's not lowering over his people. He's encouraging them to follow the, the simple manners of obedience. Fill it up? Okay, I'll fill it. Love people? Okay. I'll love them. And take all that little cup of all your efforts Take it to the master. Your little cup filled with tears of sorrow, take it to the master. It'll be transformed. And then finally here we see John interpreting the text, the, the event for us. What does John have? For, what, what do the disciples do? How do they respond? What do you, when you see the glory of God, when you see the glory of God through Christ, how do you respond? What do you do? Some of these people, they see these signs, walking on the water, feeding of the 5,000, healing of the official's son, the wedding at Cana. Some of you, even, you read it and you still carry on in your, your unbelief, but what would John have you to do? To believe. Is not the love of Christ enough to satisfy you? How much more does he need to reveal himself? Is it not the love of Christ enough to satisfy you? Is not the blood of Christ enough to purge you and wash you clean? Is not the glory of Christ enough 
to bring you to your knees to believe. An old Baptist pastor in London said, Isn't it prophetic that at a wedding our Lord begins his signs? The story of the Bible reads like all well-told tales with, and they got married, and they lived happily ever after. Here it is. We've read it because it's a beautiful text. Revelation John 19. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine, bright, and pure linens. For the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. Brothers, he's, and sisters, he is the glory of the glorified. And he will take care that throughout the ages, throughout their eternity, that the joy of his chosen, they will not fail. So when you, let's long for this true wedding that this wedding in Cana is pointing to. Long for that day. Believe in Christ that it will be true that you'll be united with him and forever rejoicing over him as he rejoices over you. So just come and behold the glory of Christ and believe. Let us pray. Let us pray.